Welcome to the No Rain, No Rainbows podcast. This is a show about pushing through obstacles and hard times in order to live a happy and fulfilled life. I'm your host, Ted Fayton, and it's a pleasure to have you joining us. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's grow. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the No Rain, No Rainbows podcast. We're doing it a little different this time, and because of the pandemic, COVID-19, social distancing, we've actually had an opportunity to expand the podcast beyond the borders of South Carolina. I'm sitting here with uh, with Dante Duval Barfield out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the house or in the Zoom call. Uh, Dante, man, thanks for being here. Why don't you introduce yourself really quick to our listeners? Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Dante Duval Barfield. I love to go by Dante Duval. That's my middle name. Uh, it's the name that my mother gave me. Um, I'm here repping Philly, and I'm repping mental health. Um, I really sincerely enjoy my work and the job that I have, and um, I'm really excited to just be here and maybe get an opportunity to share with you all some of my own perspectives and also maybe a little bit of my, of my own life story that got me here. Absolutely. And Dante Duval, I love it. And um, I love that you, you're all about mental health because, I mean, the name of the podcast is No Rain, No Rainbows. I always say life is hard, but it's worth the squeeze. One thing we can all agree on is that we go through storms in life and it's hard to know that the rainbows are coming when you're going through that storm. So I think this podcast is going to be a perfect marriage between what you're all about and what we're all about here. So listeners, I'm excited for what you're going to get here in the next 25 minutes to 30 minutes. Dante, first, I guess, talk about how you became a therapist. I think it's it's interesting when you have some kids grow up knowing what they want to be from a young age, or sometimes they stumble into something. What was the story for you? How did you uh, become to do what you do right now? My journey to become a therapist was uh, not built from uh, childhood. Uh, I definitely knew I always wanted to help people and be a part of people's lives, uh, but I grew up an only child. And art was my hobby. That was my tool. That was my escape. So I actually went to art school for my first freshman year of college. I was at, uh, in Philadelphia as well. And I noticed when I was in art school that it was more of a hobby. It really wasn't a way for me to expand myself and grow. Um, so I'm still an artist to this day, but I went through a couple years of trying to figure out what was the best route. Um, and then one day, um, somebody said, what about becoming a therapist? And I'll be honest with you, uh, as a black dude at 21, grew up in a neighborhood that did not um, say go to therapy as a kid. I didn't really know what that was. So I got to, I started asking questions and asking people who were therapists. And then I started realizing that maybe this is where I wanted to go. Uh, so after about four years in undergrad at Stockton College, three years of graduate school. Um, also, I played a little back and forth with uh, going to law school as well. I decided to, commit and maintain my dream of just helping the world. So TCNJ, the College of New Jersey, getting my master's in counseling led me to become the therapist I am today. It took me um, 10 years to say I can finally sit in an office and help people. Uh, It was not one of those four-year journeys to grad school. It was um, a long one. Uh, And now I'm actively in the field. I've been doing this. I've been uh, for four years now. Um, thousands of hours of therapy on top of years and years of support and certifications and postgraduate work. Um, I'm really engaged in the community, but my road to get here was really, I'll be honest, when I was 16, 18, if I thought I'd be a therapist at age 31, I would have laughed at you. Yeah. And, um, 
to look now and see where I'm at, um, it reminds me that I was hiding who I really was. Um, and that finding myself has been uh, one of the greatest missions ever. I want to come back to that hiding who I really was because that, that was that was key right there. But something you said earlier, which I did kind of want to unpack a little bit because you said being a black man age 21 and people are telling you maybe going down the realm of therapy. I think it is it is pretty taboo in the African-American culture to talk about mental health and, and things like that. It's pretty interesting that at 21, you were kind of introduced to that and you had kind of the awareness of your environment. What was that? taboo like what was it like breaking that taboo and kind of coming out of that space and realizing you know this is actually something we should talk about mm. um it was as hard as it was when i picked up a skateboard um and i was um hanging out with kids who didn't skateboard it was doing things that i thought uh honestly were white things you know like white people things it was breaking that shell what was it like it was doing it all over again but as an adult um being able, because every single person I asked about therapy was a white person. So it, I didn't find any people who looked like me who were doing this. Uh, it was almost as if I was, you know, trying to find my, like my way to the moon, not realizing that there's no oxygen in, like, in outer space, you know, and you're, <laughs> and you're telling me to go. And I'm like, I can't breathe. But I didn't know where to go, but I knew that there was a moon. So it was a constant struggle of not only challenging my own identity as a black man, um, but also realizing that there was so much help out there that my community doesn't really um, explore and engage in uh, as popular as other things that I knew of <laughs> growing up. Yeah. I love that you put it that way too, because um, that kind of turns and ties perfectly into what you said, hiding who I really was. Um, I'd love to kind of put the, I guess, attention spotlight on our listeners right now. I think a lot of people can relate to that in terms of, going through a journey in which they're trying things that just don't seem to feel right. And they're like, well, what's wrong? Because the optics of it might look good. They have a good job or they're making good money, but they just don't feel fulfilled within themselves. And part of it might be because they're fooling themselves. They're not accepting who it is uh, that they really are. What do you think the journey for some of our listeners could be for them to kind of start exploring who, in fact, they really are and break away from some of their own personal taboos? Mm. Um, great question. Uh, and something that I think also comes with me trying to answer is like a weight to the answer, because it's something I talk about with my clients is uh, you might make one really hard, uncomfortable change during this time with me, and it's not going to feel good. But at the end of it, you might feel that happiness that people talk about that you don't. Um, it's me kind of challenging everybody who has a job. And I say, do you like your job? Um, and when people say, yeah, I say, how many hours of it? Give me a percentage. And when people say, ah, oh, you know, like, actually, I don't really like it that much. And I say, so tell me more about how you know who <laughs> that person is inside of you. If you're still doing these things for 40 hours out of the week that don't fulfill you. Because when people realize that a lot of the things you've been doing are just to make society kind of happy, um, not yourself. I know a lot of people that, don't, that didn't fulfill their dream because they said their job wasn't going to pay them enough. Myself. <laughs> then I asked the people who did fulfill their dream and said, I wasn't worried about it paying me enough. Um, it's understanding maybe what your end goal might be. If it's financial worth, I think that a lot of us are stuck in what we think is really happy. I think that that's kind of the society we are. But when you ask those people who are really happy with what they do, um, I'm one to say, when I go to work, I'm happy. The only days I'm not are when the bus is late. There's nothing about my job I don't like. 
And to say that and be honest about it, I say it's because I didn't become a lawyer to make money. I stopped doing the things I thought were stereotypically black. And I started to, to, to do the things that were um, genuinely right. Um, testing every barrier. Becoming a therapist, you're not going to make any money. But I'm happy. And not at one moment can you financially weigh my happiness. And I will be broke. <laughs> and I will go home and I will be happy. And it's one of those magical moments to, to, to hold on to that and then say, what more can you do? Um, so I think every listener out there might have an opportunity to just sit with yourself during this COVID-19 time and say, what really makes me happy? And I'm not saying quit your job, but I'd say you have a lot more time outside of 40 hours to see what you can do. Yeah, absolutely. And that reminds me of um, a question someone asked me a while ago, which it was said, if happiness was currency, what job would make you the richest person in the world? And I think a lot of people don't sit down and ask themselves that because to your point, um, we see the materialistic things that we want, the, uh, the American dream, the white picket fence, the beautiful house. And at the same time, they don't tell you how big that white that house has to be or if you need a white picket fence. Um, so I think people, they fall in love with this image and mm-hmm. the process to get to that image is what mm-hmm. they focus on. And that's really how someone can spiral into a situation where they find themselves having to maintain what they have. I think they call them golden handcuffs. Um, as you talk to people who might be going through the golden handcuff situation, right? Mm-hmm. They've made decisions in their lives and they find themselves in a place. And I'm talking to the listeners right now who might be going through their own storm that might not look like a storm on the outside. We're in the midst of this COVID-19, this pandemic. Maybe you were furloughed, laid off, you're sitting at home, and you're not exactly sure what you're going to do. But you have this extra time on your hands. But I find that sometimes people have a hard time getting started, getting past what they've done. How can you convince somebody that the decisions that they've made don't define them? And the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And the second best time is right now. Like, what, what can you do to tell these listeners right now to, uh, to get started on their dream? Mm, um, one of the, the one therapy tool that really helped me out to start was narrative therapy. And I'm not going to go into a thing about that. But one thing that helped me understand was the power of stories. Um, a lot of people might take starting your dream now as like resetting your life, you know, that, that there's this time wasted or something like that. Uh, one thing I, I let everybody know is that it's, it's more like an upgrade, you know, like my iTunes. Like I got to upgrade it all the time. <laughs> if I don't, my new music can't go on. And it's frustrating to have to keep doing it all the time. But I do. And one thing I let people know is that when you decide to even tap into that change that you have, I don't need to convince you. You've already convinced yourself. You want to inside of here. Now it just takes all of the opportunity to realize that it's not resetting. It's upgrading. I think everybody, I think if we can find some ways to reframe like that deep fear and ugh of like change and just saying, no, it's just an upgrade. It's like adding, like, it's like a body kit onto a car, you know, um, adding a dope exhaust to your engine. Something that, makes it better because you're already amazing so i would never want to reset that Ugh, you know i actually want to take that and now use it um to see what more you can do with it it's like when people don't like want to write a book and they started you know like i should have started when i was 20 i was like you got 10 years of experience now to add to that book 
<laughs> you know, it's, it's going to be a better, might be a better book. Oh, you know, it's like, that's it. Now go see what happens. <laughs> yeah. All about perspective, right? Kind of how, how you see it. I love that. He's like, yeah, 10 extra years of experience to put in that book. There you go. Cause oh. my, I did think about writing a book five or six years ago and I still haven't written it yet. So I appreciate that perspective because that helps me. <laughs> go with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, putting in the spotlight on myself for a little bit and, and kind of sharing my vulnerabilities. I remember, and I was actually working through this with um, one of my mentors um, about something about me that I don't like to be wrong. I find it really hard if I'm wrong, I'm hard on myself. And for some reason, I keep going back to a memory when I was in high school. And one of the best sports I was ever a part of, unfortunately, I wasn't a part of it very long, but it was wrestling. And what I loved about it, it was you and this other person. You put everything out on the mat. There's nobody to blame but yourself. And mm -hmm. that's very empowering and exhilarating. Mm -hmm. It's also very scary because this, yeah. to this day, I remember a very close match I had with someone. And I lost at the end of the match. And I remember going into the corner crying because it was probably the most devastating experience I could really remember because it was a situation in which I gave it my all. I've done everything I could do. And at the end of the day, it wasn't enough. And I feel like, you know, putting the spotlight on me was, um, I feel like I'm very hard on myself in terms of even recording this podcast. Even to this day, when I sit down, I go on air, I get very critical of myself and I'm very scared to be wrong. Um, I've unpacked that by, and I've kind of combated that by taking action and just doing it regardless and swinging the bat again, even if I miss. But if somebody has negative self-talk or they have the same kind of self-criticism, how can they silence that voice and kind of make louder the empowering voice that tells them to try again? Okay. It's a really great question. Um, and cause it, really kind of taps into a lot of the levels of the work that I do. I do, I do a lot of trauma work. And when I say the word trauma, it also kind of brings a weight. But one thing I do with that word is take all the weight away. Um, it's my favorite thing. And I like to call myself like a trauma specialist because it's everything all my clients end up doing, even if you never thought you were. And something about memories and the negative ones we have and those negative beliefs that we carry with us end up kind of taking control sometimes. You know, like when you first want to start a podcast or even re-record your 90th one you're still kind of criticizing yourself we hold on to these things because we end up creating like a like you said i need to be right that when you're wrong it's like oh that's all i can't do that i gotta be right i like to if i were to give advice on negative self-talk i would really love this one to be first um i like to give everybody the cartoon technique and that's like thinking of your favorite cartoon character and then having that voice be that cartoon character and then um, letting the voice play. Because one thing I tell everybody is that I'm not going to tell you to stop that negative self-talk. Mm -mm. The same way I'm not going to tell you to stop, stop thinking about a giraffe. Everybody. Yeah. So it's, I'm going to say, no, go with it. Go with the negative talk. I want you now to learn how to rather manage that talk rather than try to stop it. Um, it's really hard to do that. If you want to now look at how I would really tap into this in my way. Um, I kind of look at everything with a little bit of an unorthodox perspective is that that, that memory you have matters. <laughs> and I would ask everybody out there to say, how would you prefer to believe? If you believe that you have to be right, that's not a, that's not a positive belief. How would you prefer? And that's when I tap into so many things. Like maybe you, I can learn from that. I'm okay with who I am. 
I can make mistakes and it's okay. You see, those three beliefs are so much lighter than I have to be right. So if I'm going to now ask you all to marry these three positive ones to that negative one and say, how about every time you think you have to be right, you actually say, I can learn from it. <laughs> I'm okay with who I am. And if I make mistakes, that's all right. Speeding this up might take some time to go from that, <laughs> that negative lead to here. I come in and I tap through that middle part. And I tap into it very hard to let everybody understand that we have the capabilities to get there on our own. But you have to acknowledge and be aware of your past. Be okay with understanding the hard things that have happened to you and be willing to learn to let go. Then not at once do you have to be right. Love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, and if I ever do see that kid again that I wrestled in high school, I, I, try, I challenge him to a rematch. <laughs> um, yeah. I love that thing you said that, you know, I'm okay with who I am because um, I think it's easy for us to see, especially in the world that we live in. And a lot of people have a lot more time on their hands right now. I mean, they're they're likely sitting at home, uh, social distancing. And the beauty of that has been more time on Zoom calls and maybe linking up with family and friends a little bit more. The downside to that might also equal more time on social media and can also kind of result in seeing a lot of that filtered life that some people have. And how can somebody work on accepting themselves when they see the highlight of everyone else around them, yet they see the BTS behind the scenes of their own lives and the two mm-hmm. just don't match up? Mm-mm. Oh man. Well, comparing yourself to anybody on social networking, <laughs> I start with the ground up, you know, ground up. Um, and that right there is the first acknowledgement. It's understanding your playing field of comparison. That's what I like to bring into my clients. Like, all right, if you're going to compare, let's keep it fair. Who are you comparing yourself to? What are they showing you? And now how is that rational? Um, social networking can be a really great benefit to our lives. It really can. It can highlight and make us, it can normalize our challenges. It can connect us to our friends, but there's also the negative side of it. I think there's a, there's a bad in all of our good. If you and I were to chug 10 glasses of water in 10 minutes, one of us might die. Why is that? Even too much water is bad for you. You know, you can drown from the inside out. Even too much social networking is bad for you. And I think if we all can try to find some space, understand that first, once you start comparing yourself to those, the rarities on social networking, the people who will blast that, even people like myself, that they started a podcast and everything's great. Mm-mm. It's being okay with that your story is far more important than anything that I do. And if I'm showing it to the world and you're comparing yourself to me, that was not my intention. If everybody can put limits and boundaries around social networking, I think we would have the most beautiful world. I think Facebook and Instagram will be beautiful. If there were no likes, it'd be great. If there wasn't... um, if everybody, if every time you posted something great, you had to balance it with something really bad. <laughs> every happy baby picture, you get to throw up picture, you know? Every happy couple picture, you get that fight. But a whole gift of the fight, too. You don't just get a, <laughs> you get the whole gift. You got to get the whole 10 seconds just to show people that, yeah, we all have, we all go through the same problems. That's why when I see something happy on Facebook, I immediately say, oh, man, I wonder how many times that baby pooped today. <laughs> just to make sure that I understand that it's not all good. You're showing me the good today. Thank you. I'm not going to compare myself today. 
How can you do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> how many times did that baby poop today? That's, <laughs> I'm going to keep that in the back of my head. I think that's a great every, tool. <laughs> every time. Every single time I go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't want to feel bad when I having a baby yet. You know? Can't do that. It's coronavirus season. You wants to bring it? No, I'm going to be okay. I'm yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of, you know, a lot of people kind of look at themselves and the fact that you just mentioned, you know, I don't want to bring a baby into the world yet and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of pressure because um, we've talked about society. You know, we've talked about putting up with the public image and then comparing to others. Um, mm-hmm. What about our timelines, right? I mean, we could see somebody younger who seems mm-hmm. to have the job, like we say, the optics are good. They got the job, the family, whatnot. And this person's like 25, and I'm 31 trying to figure out how to keep this house standing that I just got. And I don't even mm-hmm. know what's going to happen next. I mean, how can we run our own race without thinking that we're running behind? Mm. Yeah, there are some fast people out there, aren't there? <laughs> <laughs> you say bolts everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, remember, I remember reading an article about a 21-year-old millionaire. Like black kid, like, and I was like, "Whoa, what'd you do? What was I doing wrong?" Oh, twenty-one, I was partying. You know? I was waiting in line at a club while you were engaging in intellectual work at age sixteen. Nah, I get it, right? It's something about um, I like to maybe use, even though I can't, um, like like having a kid and how old you have to be. That's one of the biggest ones I think that we have, right? Is that when you see people having kids, it's like you bring in age, you bring in I'm too late, or I have to do it at this time. Because everybody around you might be popping kids out of 22. I know people who graduated on time, four years, you know? I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> How'd you do that, you know? And it's, it's really trying to take stake in this. And this is what I let everybody know, is that when you come into my office, and if you even talk to me, you are not talking to the world that we live in. Because that is the place you are trying to, like, mold and grow and show to. Everybody is vulnerable and transparent to only a few certain people in this world. Very few. I have a job of one, maybe your close partner, somebody else, but to really be vulnerable and transparent, the world doesn't get that at all. So when you can build your own timeline, that is when you can find safety and peace with realizing that that at 41, having a child might be okay. 31, buying your first house and having it fall apart. Man, I might really be like, faster than most because I know people who are 50 still looking to buy their first house. The act of comparing is so unfair because people only compare on one side of the fence. And every time you compare, you got to do both. And if you don't do that, your comparing will keep you trapped and your book will not be written. (laughs) People will continue to say no because somebody else did it faster. And then that's when I say, wait, wait, what about the person who's older who still didn't do it? We all have the opportunity to choose to look at both sides of the picture. Um, a lot of people just like to look at the glass half, half empty, and that's okay. Welcome to who we are. That is, I think we're conditioned to do that. Um, unconditioning that, <laughs> I never knew psychology 101 would make sense to me as an adult. Here I am. <laughs> and try unconditioning adults to think that they can still do it. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's, that's the challenge. How can you do that? You can. I promise you. Some of the greatest books I've ever read were written by people in their 40s and 50s. Wow. Yeah. You know, so. I love how. So you said something that I kind of just try to unpack in my head because um, both my parents are immigrants. Mm -hmm. 
they're both from Haiti and you know they they came to this country to give me a chance at a successful life and yep. they're proud of me now and they see my ambition and they don't get it mm-hmm. and it's funny because we have that difference in the mindset where mm-hmm. they see me and they said you have everything like we sacrificed everything so you don't have to work that hard and I see it as well you sacrifice everything so I need to work that hard some people get so locked in their ways or so locked in their mindset um almost the whole saying you can bring a horse to water but you can't make them drink I guess my question is how can you make that horse thirsty how can you change someone's mindset and I know they have to want to do it themselves but can you enlighten someone to the fact that they're thirsty oh yeah I mean keep walking around that lake Sometimes I'll drink the lake water myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let them know it's there. Uh, I, even, I even lap it up like a horse too. No. <laughs> um, so this is one thing that I say to, to like when people will come in and say, Dante, I want to get like my partner to do this. And I say, if I had the ability to change other people, I would be the richest therapist in the world. <laughs> I'd be the only person with a job. Dante, I can come here and change other people in your life. One thing I do let people know is that um, sometimes you don't have to tell people uh, the changes that you want from them. Uh, you don't even have to really kind of tell yourself. You have to kind of actively, actively engage in newer age thinking and newer age action. So, like, so what could that look like? Um, if Let's just use you for example. Um, do you want to not uh, feel the need to work hard? Because you believe you have to because your parents are they're immigrants and they have brought themselves here for you. If that is that need right there, I say, hmm, that would be the part I'd look at and say, how come? When it's validating your parents saying you don't have to, and then you saying, now I'm going to work hard for who now? Is it for your parents or is it for somebody else? Because I'd say, I don't know if it's for your parents anymore. It might be for the next generation. <laughs> yeah. it's tapping into new age like wait a minute all right so maybe you move past your parents and realize that they gave you this opportunity and now you're like first it was for them uh-huh but don't you got a got a girl now in a house and a job thousands of people listen to you i don't i don't know if it's just your parents anymore and it's part of now being okay with that <laughs> it's like the upgraded version might be parents plus and then when my parents say I'm working too hard, it's you say, no, it's, I like, this is me. This is actually a part of what you've helped create. This isn't a negative thing, mom and dad, but mom and dad might make it feel that way sometimes. Okay. Welcome to some of the work I do, you know, or leaving some of that, you know, I know parents make you believe a certain way sometimes. That's okay. But it's also okay to then be your own self and say you're doing it for you now. <laughs> I love that. I think they and I think they'd like that answer better because Prada and them is probably thinking like you don't have to do this for us anymore, <laughs> and that probably be very very helpful. I want to talk about your practice and, and you mentioned how much you love what you do. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of first general question is what is your favorite thing about being a therapist? Um, never knowing what I'll say goodbye. Because hmm. I normally never do. I normally don't really have a plan last session or moment where somebody says, next week's it, we're going to say bye. The favorite part of my job is realizing that, um, and I let everybody know this, that I relieve myself from every greed that you do. 
that my mission and goal is to instill something that you learn about yourself and that hopefully within our therapeutic relationship, you find it. People who put timelines to being better, that's, I squash that. Um, and I think the greatest part of my job is never putting a deadline to anything that people actually want to get at the therapy. I challenge all concepts of goals, short-term, long-term. I don't say either of those. I say, goal, what do you want? I ask people, how would you prefer to walk out of my office the last time? And when they say that, and when it happens, I normally never know when it does. And that is one of the most beautiful parts of my job. And I think as I continue to grow and continue to engage in this work, um, I might find new things that are my favorite and my best. Um, but right now, that's it. And it's been that way for some time. Um, just knowing that people find something that I never thought that they would. And I, it's not a check mark on a box that school taught me. It's not some short-term, long-term goal they built week one. Mm-hmm. Some of the goals that people have attained, I could never put on paper. <sighs> Couldn't even try. It would be too long. Um, it would, wouldn't make sense to most people. And insurance companies don't need it. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Do you think when people come to sit down for you, what they're looking for is already within them? Yeah. 100%. If I was the expert on your life, I'd have to be there with you every second of it. The only person that was with you every second of your life was you. So not at one moment will I ever be the thing, the word, the person that made you you. It was there. You see, my, my goal is to tap some of those boxes and barriers and that luggage you're carrying around. I want you to unzip it, show me it, and then when you walk out, Something I'm like, I also let people know is how much luggage do you have today? 12 bags. How much do you, how much would you prefer to travel with? A carry on. <laughs> yeah. Um, they already had to carry on. I'm not holding on to your luggage. <laughs> <laughs> it was already, you, were, you already had the ability to unpack it. I just created the space, the safety, maybe the perspective. Um, whatever it may have been for that person, um, that's what it was. Yeah. It's like actually a quote I heard in um, a book I'm reading right now by John Maxwell, Unlocking the Leader Within You. He said, the, the youth asked the, the master, what's the heaviest burden to carry? And he said, not having a burden at all. And uh, that kind of stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we're coming to the end of the podcast, I kind of want to ask you, maybe shine the light really quick, is I'm sure you help so many people through their storms in life and you help them mm-hmm. kind of navigate themselves out of it. Uh, mm-hmm. What about... For you personally, what's a major storm that you were able to kind of overcome in your life that helps give you the confidence to take on any storms or challenges that might come your way in the future? Um, I want to answer this question uh, with the most honest and genuine answer I have. Um, Because if you asked me this five years ago, I wouldn't have answered truthfully. Um, My mother passing away when I was six years old uh, is a storm that I'm continuing to be in. Because the grieving process to me lasts as long as you like it to. And I'm at that part of acceptance of that. And it's beautiful. It's so beautiful that I swim in it every day. I squeeze the life out of it. Losing my mother at age six and my father the day I was born. Um, and my father, not by death, but by his own choice, 
and being raised by my mother's mother from age six um, until I went to college. She lost her own daughter and raised her son. My grandmother worked two jobs, 80 hours a week. My babysitter was me. I had rules in the house to pick up the phone and say that my grandmother was busy. My grandmother put a roof and food, food on my plate every single day. She kept me in private school throughout eighth grade. I went to high school for the first time and I was around black people and it was really nice. When I left home for the first time to go to college, it was the first time that I realized that I was kind of alone. That I had to start this process of grieving the person I lost when I was six and grieve the life that I thought was so traumatic and accept how beautiful it actually was. That was why I didn't become a therapist because I didn't know who I was. I refused to accept that my mom was gone and I had this stereotypical black narrative, I call it. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, and I lived this, this life that was so complicated, but I just complicated myself. Being 31 years old and being able to share this story that every single day when I wake up, I tell people, the worst thing has already happened to me. There's nothing you can do to hurt me. And people ask me how and why. I say, at age six, I lost my lifeline. And she's the only reason now that I live and that I breathe and that I do the work that I do. How did you get to that moment? I tap into that in every session. A lot of people say, what do you think about before you go into session? I think about my mom every single time. Why? Because without her, I would not be here. Without her fighting through cancer, to stay alive till I was six, whew, what a fight. So I promised myself one day that I'll fight the same way she did. Here I am, fighting that storm. <laughs> I love that. And that's amazing because um, I think it's important to know a lot of people think that there's a timeline on the grieving process. A lot of people think uh, of something, there's an expiration date, right? In terms of when something happens to when it should affect you. Um, if nobody ever confronts that or picks it up and examines it, you know, it, it can stay with you for a very long time. So um, I appreciate you sharing that. And um, mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of folks listening probably have some, some reflection and some unpacking of their own to do. And if they need help with that, I'd love to give them an opportunity to reach out to you, Dante. Um, I know I know you're in Philadelphia, but because of Zoom and technology and everything that we're learning now during this pandemic, we've learned just how small the world actually is. So what's the best way folks can, can reach out to you, connect with you, and, and maybe learn more? Oh, man. Well, you can connect with me at any moment that you would possibly want. Um, I answer questions daily from random people all over the world about therapy and about advice and support and ways to connect in therapy. Uh, you can reach me at unorthodoxtherapist at gmail.com. Um, that's unorthodoxtherapist at gmail.com. Um, you can ask me any questions related to um, anything that you heard me talk about. I connect people with resources all the time. And also, um, I see people in all states all over. Um, I do telemental health all over the not say world, but the nation, Florida, California, uh, Pennsylvania, Jersey, you name it. Um, my goal and mission in life is to challenge the stigma to mental health and give access to anybody and everybody. Uh, one thing I didn't really share about myself is that most of my clients um, are on Medicare and Medicaid. 
Um, I provide access to my to my trauma work um, to people who can't afford much. And I do that uh, because that's where I came from. And my goal and mission in life is to keep spreading that. So if any of you out there are are ever interested, please reach out. Um, And I also have a a, a podcast I just started. Um, And this podcast is a different spin. Now, it is therapeutic at times, but it is also entertaining. And my mission for it only is to make therapy fun. I believe that there is a heavy stigma of boredom, <laughs> a heavy stigma of, I don't really know if it's going to work. And I like to really introduce people to how great it is, how much fun it can really be, and how you might actually smile and laugh more than cry. So that's um, The Unorthodox Therapist. You can just Google it, type it in. I'm on all platforms. And so far, it's been great. Um, and I'll be tapping into every topic possible. Uh, and I take tons of suggestions for that as well. So. Thanks again for asking. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'll have those linked in the show notes at the end. And uh, Dante, I just want to say thank you again for, for giving us the time, the wisdom. Um, I feel like there's so much more we can unpack of, of your story and, and some other topics. So it might not be the last time you're on this podcast. I'll let you know that right now. <laughs> um, and well, hey, I'm here at any moment that you need me, my man. I really appreciate it. Um, one last note. Don't be afraid to turn the worst things into gifts. Yeah. Uh, you never know what could happen. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna write that down too. Um, I wrote a number of things down, some things that you mm-hmm. said in terms of comparing. Where when you compare, it has to be fair. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people compare on one side and not the other, mm-hmm. and even packing that because you were you were on one. And I wrote down that comparing is paralyzing. When we compare ourselves, others, you're not gonna write that book. You're not gonna start that podcast or mm-hmm. or go for that thing that you really want to do because you're comparing with the wrong people. So you need to be fair. And um, hiding who I really was, I want to challenge the listeners right now to think about who it is they really are. I want them to think about what it is about themselves they haven't fully accepted yet. What is it about themselves that they just don't feel 100% with? I heard a rapper say, if the vibe's not for me, I'm leaving, right? I think so many of us can benefit from that. And there's so many more valuable uh, tips that you dropped along the episodes. I hope folks go back and listen to it again. Dante, thank you so much to the listeners and the watchers. Thank you for making it to the end. And as we always say at the end of the episode, everybody wants the sunshine, but they don't want the rain, but you can't get the pleasure without a little pain. Let's grow. The No Rain, No Rainbows podcast is recorded at Camaraderie, a collective workspace in Greenville, South Carolina, right off the Swamp Rabbit Trail. If you're looking for a place to grow your business, network with other professionals, and establish your own workspace, Camaraderie is the place to do so. Get access to high-speed internet, private showers and towel service, free methodical coffee, and free beer on tap. For more details, be sure to head over to camaraderiecowork.com or hit the link in the show notes and find out how you can lock in your space with rates starting at just $99 a month. Be sure to tell them that Ted sent you and try it out for free. You never know, you just might find a new home at Camaraderie. Let's grow.